Well, amen. You may be seated. Well, thank you all for joining us tonight. It, I know it's the middle of the week, and it's not always easy to do something outside of the ordinary, but um, so glad that you guys made space for, uh, for this time of fellowship and worship. So thank you for, for being here. Well, tonight we're going to take some time to look at uh, a passage that I think fits our season quite well. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 together. So if you'd like to, to read with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's take some time now to, to go to our God in prayer. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we, we thank you tonight for the gift of your word. Uh, we thank you for the honor uh, of knowing you. Uh, so Lord, we, we ask that the Spirit would move in our hearts tonight, that we would give thanks, uh, give thanks to you for uh, being able to be in relationship with you, uh, give thanks to you for the gift of getting to look at your word. I would give thanks for, for a community to, to understand your word with. Father, we pray that you would, you would bless this time tonight, that you'd bless each person here. Help us to draw closer to Jesus. It's in his great name we pray. Amen. Well, Thanksgiving is almost here, which I think is one of the few times in our culture where we collectively come together and, and think more about what we have versus what we don't have. We've all kind of agreed on this day. Hi, Harper. I love you so much. It is so good to see you. And you want to go see, you want to go see Mama? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, perfect. <laughs> That's fun. All right. Um, so this is, this is one of the few times in the year where we come together again and, and think more about what we do have and give thanks for that as opposed to complain about what we don't have. And I think that this is something that is good for us and it's also something that, that God fully approves of. And we know this because throughout his word, he is continually commanding us to give thanks. So I want to show you a few examples of that throughout the scriptures. So in Psalm 106, 1, we read, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then in Psalm 136, 26, we read, Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. And in Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 20, we read, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to the God, excuse me, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we read, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And from our text tonight, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, 
Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So God commands us over and over and over again to give thanks and come to find out this practice is actually good for us. Uh, Social scientists have discovered all sorts of positive benefits that accompany the practice of giving thanks. Studies have shown that those who intentionally practice gratitude sleep better, they go to the doctor less often, They show less depressive symptoms and are generally happier and more satisfied with their lives. It's almost as though the one who invented humans has some knowledge about what makes them work. Shai Davidai, an academic psychologist and assistant professor of psychology at the New School of Research, commented, it's just amazing how many positive correlates there are to gratitude. So we can say with both theological and scientific certainty that the practice of gratitude giving thanks is good. And so we should take the command of verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice seriously. I think to some extent the whole Christian life should be defined by gratitude. So tonight I want to take some time to look at Philippians 4, 4 to 7 to see what the life of gratitude looks like, and to examine some of the characteristics that should accompany and contribute to a life of thanksgiving. One such characteristic is what we see in verse 4, rejoicing. So let's start again with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Gratitude involves rejoicing. And Paul gives this command twice just in case you missed it the first time. We are to rejoice always in the Lord. Now, it can be easy for us to hear those words and to think, well, well, that sounds nice, but look at all the stuff that I'm going through. And that's where I think it's helpful for us to take a step back and look at the context in which this letter was written, right? So the book of Philippians, it's a letter to a church in Philippi, which is in modern-day Macedonia, And this was a church that Paul loved and cared for deeply, and he wanted to go see them, but he couldn't. Why? He was in prison. So the man issuing the call to rejoice twice was a man who was currently writing those words while in chains. And so that was one reason why it was difficult for for him to, uh, to write those words, but he did it anyway. But there's another difficulty that this church that he loved and cared for were, were, was facing all sorts of external pressures. There are two groups that were coming and infiltrating the church and ultimately trying to lead them astray. There was a group known as the Judaizers who insisted that in order to follow Jesus, you also had to follow all of the Old Testament, all of the Mosaic codes, including the dietary restrictions and, uh, and circumcision. There was another group that was basically the opposite of the Judaizers, known as the Antinomians, who had a distorted view of the gospel of grace. They came in and said, we're saved by grace, so we get to do whatever we want. And Paul looks at both groups and says, nah, those are horrible distortions of the gospel. And so Paul is in distress because of his chains. He's in distress because of these outsiders coming into the church that he loves so deeply. And in addition to that, third reason for, for Paul's, you know, the third reason that Paul would have Right, to, to, to bemoan, there is conflict within the church itself. 
And so the verses leading up to this text where Paul commands us to rejoice, he is addressing a specific issue in which there is a conflict between two women, two female leaders in the church, women that he calls fellow workers in the gospel. Right? They're, they're fighting. And so Paul has to step in and, and try to mediate from afar. But what does Paul say despite all of these different struggles, you know, despite his chains where he didn't know if he would make it out alive? Despite this external pressure, despite this internal pressure in this community that he loves so deeply, what does he say? He says, rejoice. Not in your circumstances. His circumstances were rough, to say the least. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. One commentator writes, he is not immune to sorrow, nor should he be insensitive to the troubles of others. Yet he should count the will of God his highest joy. And so be capable of knowing inner peace and joy in every circumstance. And so Paul doesn't minimize or ignore the troubles that he is facing, but he is clinging to the hope that he has in the gospel. He knows that none of these circumstances shake his foundation, that he belongs to Jesus, that he is known and loved by the God of the universe. Friends, you might be walking into this room all sorts of different things on your mind, all sorts of pressures, all sorts of hardships, but you do have reason to rejoice. Why? Because you are known and you are loved by the God of the universe. You belong to Jesus no matter what. That is a gift. That is reason to rejoice. So the life of thanksgiving is characterized by rejoicing, but it's also characterized by reasonableness. In the next verse, Paul goes on to say, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And the word rendered reasonableness in this verse is, is a hard word to translate with its full meaning. Right? The best attempts include words like gentle or yielding, kind, forbearing, and lenient. It involves a willingness to yield one's personal rights to show consideration and gentleness to others. Now, I think to a point, we're willing to do this to, to certain people. We're willing to do this for certain people, namely like the people that live in our house. Right? You, you, you can't not at some point yield your personal rights to those that, that share a roof with you, and, and that's good, right? We're willing to do that sometimes with, with close friends, too. But who does Paul tell us to demonstrate reasonableness to? Everyone. Yikes, right? That is, that is a scary thought. But Paul actually grounds this command as well as all of the others that, that proceed and follow it uh, in, in chapter 4 with an important and life-altering truth, which he lays out in chapter 3. In verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3, we read, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This reality makes it possible for me to act with gentleness here and now. As a Christian, do I need to cling to my earthly rights, ensure that my voice is being heard here and now? 
Do I need to resort to the tactics of the world in order to do so? No. Why not? Because I am first and foremost a citizen of heaven. My salvation isn't going to come through a, a law or a candidate. No, it comes through Jesus. And by faith, I look forward to the day when all things are subjected to him. And in the meantime, I get, I have the privilege of being gentle, yielding, kind, forbearing, and lenient. And imagine just for a moment what life would be like if we saw this played out in our culture at large. Imagine what our freeways would be like if we saw this value played out uh, on a grand scale. Well, as a church, as those who belong to Jesus, we get to live that out here and now in faith that one day Jesus is going to come and set everything right. We get to practice kindness. We get to be a community marked by gentleness, not overly concerned about whether or not we're taken advantage of because our hope is in the coming, is in our coming Savior. And I think there's something extremely attractive about that. It takes faith, but our God deserves our faith. He has proven himself trustworthy. So we are marked by rejoicing. We are marked by reasonableness. We're also marked by thanksgiving and peace. Let's look at the last section together. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the next verse, you know, begins, uh, or the next section at least, begins with another big truth. The Lord is at hand. And this can mean one of two things, or perhaps it can mean two things. One, that the Lord is coming back, and that's specifically referenced throughout the book. But it can also mean that He is present with us now by His Spirit. And understood either way, this truth provides another foundation for the following command. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God is present with us now by his Spirit, and he is coming back. And those realities trivialize anxiety. Now, as human beings, we will always be prone to anxiety. That is a reality of, of our existence. So Paul gives us a positive action to help us combat anxiety. And that action is prayer. Now, I think there's something really interesting about the way that this command to pray is presented. We're told to pray, to make our requests known to God with thanksgiving. Which I think begs the question, why are we giving thanks before our prayers have been answered? We are making our requests known, already giving thanks. Now, I don't think it means that we are making our requests known in the way that we make requests with our families. Uh, what I mean by that is, is, and perhaps this only happens in my household, maybe it doesn't happen in yours, uh, but there's, there's a way of making a request that's really just a command with a thank you thrown in there, right? Like, you know, will you help me empty the dishwasher? Thank you. 
That sounds more like a command. Or, you know, will you help me with the laundry? Thanks. You know, would you take out the trash? Thank you. That's a command with a thank you. That's not, how we're, that's not what we're being told uh, to do here. That is not how we are uh, being asked to treat God. Instead, we're being called to make real requests, but to do so with thanksgiving. Right? We're to be thankful before we know how God is going to answer our petitions. Why? So what we're being called to do here is to give thanks ahead of time for the entire range of possible responses. Trusting that however God responds will be the best thing for us. How can we possibly do that? By clinging to important foundational life-altering truths that we see, that we've already seen here in this text, but where we see, uh, that we see elsewhere. For example, in Romans 8.28, where Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. See, this verse reassures us that though the world is racked with sin and suffering, that things are not as they should be, God has not withdrawn from the world. He's still sovereign over all the terrible things that we have to deal with. And because of that, He has the ability to use even the worst things for good. This past weekend, our family went, uh, went up to Sequoia. Uh, we, we took some time out to, to go be in nature and to, and to get to spend time with my brother and his family. So he has, he has four kids, so combined there are lots of children, and, and it, was, it was a good time. Um, we were super grateful for the trip, and, and Oliver like, loved, loved being with his cousins. But we went all the way up to Sequoia, and we did not see a single Sequoia tree I did not see a single sequoia tree because there was a fire in the park that we did not know uh, was happening. Uh, it wasn't really affecting the areas that we were in, but most of the park was closed. And so we were only able to go about six miles in. So it's still beautiful. It's still, it still fun. Uh, you know, but we were, we were slightly bummed that we didn't actually get to see you know, the thing for which this park is named, but that's okay. Uh, but when, when I heard that there was a fire in the park, I... I remembered uh, a story that, that one, of our, one of our members told us about sequoia trees after he had taken his family out to, uh, out to sequoia earlier in the year. Uh, see, fires are actually necessary for the growth of sequoia trees. Uh, it's part of the ecosystem in that, in that part of California. See, without fires, the, the seed pods of sequoia trees don't open up. So fire is actually the thing that causes the pods to, to grow up, and it, and it sprinkles seeds throughout, uh, throughout the ground, and it also clears the brush so that when a seed actually takes root and starts to sprout, there's life, there, there's the potential for it to grow and develop. Uh, and when, the, when there's no fire, there's no new life, there's no new sequoia trees. There's actually a period in the late 1800s and early 1900s where a massive fire suppression took place, and it was accompanied by a massive failure of sequoia reproduction. These trees that can live to be 3,000 years old and can be up to 300 or 300 plus feet are actually born of fire. And some of the biggest, most beautiful trees, they, they bear the scars of past fires. Friends, life is hard. 
And God doesn't promise to save us from every fire. But God is able to, and we have seen him time and again, accomplish beautiful things in and through the flames. And I think the ultimate example of that is the cross of Jesus. Any onlooker at the events surrounding Jesus' trial and crucifixion would have observed them and thought, what good could possibly come of this? And Jesus' own disciples appeared to, to think that very thing as they ran away from Jesus in his time of need. But it was at this very moment in which we see God doing what he says he does in 1 Corinthians 1.27, using what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, using what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God used these seemingly ridiculous, scandalous means to bring about his good purposes. And what were those good purposes? At the salvation of the world. So I know that there are real struggles in this room, that there is real hurt and heartache and understandable worry. And here God invites us to bring that to him in prayer, trusting that while he may not give us exactly what we want, he will absolutely give us what we most need. His ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, and the cross is the ultimate demonstration of that. But the cross is also the ultimate demonstration of his love, of his care for us, of his willingness to identify with us. Dorothy Sayers once commented that Jesus' life and death demonstrate that God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain all for us and thought it was well worth his while. So how do we battle worry and anxiety? Well, we pray. And we pray knowing that the one who hears our prayers knows our pain. He knows it firsthand. He knows it intimately because he endured it himself. Why? Out of his love for you. And so we have reason to give thanks. And so we pray not in despair, but with thanksgiving. And when we do, we're told in verse 7 that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, the word guard here is a military term, and it's a reminder that, that the thing guarding us is not some Roman garrison as it would have been in, in Paul's day. No, it's, it's the peace of God. So what are you worrying about right now? What's causing you to be anxious? Well, friends, God invites you to give those things to him. And again, he doesn't promise to give you what you want but he will give you what you need and he'll give you his peace to face it. And for that, we should give thanks. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we, we thank you for these truths, for the, the truths that we belong to you. 
the reality that we have reason to give thanks in, in every circumstance. Father, we thank you for the ways in which you have proven yourself faithful most powerfully at the cross. Lord, we pray that you would help us to cling to the love that's demonstrated there. Lord, as we, as we face troubles, as we face worries and anxieties, we ask that you would help us to give thanks, to remember that we have reason for rejoicing in all things because of your goodness and your faithfulness to us. And it's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.